We're resuming from 4, uh, 25, 21, Sunday. We're right in the middle of our notes here in point two, where it says he will reprove the world. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit, what he would do. He would reprove the world. And we're going to get, obviously, to sin, to righteousness, and judgment. I will quickly go through these points because, unfortunately, our, we had a snafu with the recorder. But here we go. So the first thought is we should categorize the Spirit's work in salvation. Well, what does that mean? It means, as the context goes, it gives it to us the Spirit's work in two phases. One is the phase of to the world, and then the second part is the phase uh, to believers. So to quickly go through the world, the Spirit's coming to the world for salvation. And I note <clears throat> the Spirit was always in the world, uh, you know, doing the work of salvation since the beginning. Genesis 6-3, we can read that. And we should note that no one could be saved in any age without the Spirit's working in their heart. So why does the Spirit have to come to the world? Because this there is new information about the Savior. Is What's different? What changed? Point four, what's new? The, and this new information is now available, that Jesus is the Christ. He's the one that died for the sins of the whole world. That's Romans 3, 25 through 26. If you read those verses, it talks about how Christ reached back. Right, people that died, the sins that were paid for in the Old Testament were really not paid. They were covered. But Christ came along, and now those sins were imputed to him for judgment. And he really did take those sins. Every sin of, that happened in the Old Testament, God set Christ for, forth, and I'll read it, verse Romans 3.25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be revealed by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he left the sins committed forehand, uh, beforehand unpunished. So even though they were covered, they weren't taken away. They weren't really judged in Christ. And God is righteous. He is not going to forget about sins and say, well, that's good enough. Covering is good. No, they need to be taken away. They were only looking forward to Christ taking them in the first place. So now this is the, the one. He has literally done that. He has taken sins away. That's a difference from Old Testament theology to New Testament theology. We have what we might call propitiation. Uh, the, and continuing in point number four, the one who was resurrected and approved by God, and that's an important point, right? This is the one. Who, who's the Christ? The one who died under Pontius Pilate. The one who was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And, and the one who Christ, uh, the Christ who was raised to life and seen by over 500 people. Uh, th this person is now God's instrument. He is the Christ, the son of the living God, as Peter remarked. And how do we know? Because God resurrected him. He was raised from the dead. That's an important point to identify that it is Jesus who is the Christ. And he is our propitiation for our sins. And that's 1 John 2, 2, where it says that he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. So that even talks about future. So not only do we have past, Christ, we, we look back to the past, you know, sins that were left in his forbearance, he left unpunished. He had to take care of all of those. And then all the sins that would happen in the whole world have to be imputed to Christ and judge. And all of that happened on the cross. So it's not like, oh, it will happen. It happened. This is the reality. So now, yeah, this is new information. We're not just talking about a Christ who is to come. We're talking about a Christ who came and now... There is no other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the Holy Spirit has to come now and not only reiterate what salvation is and the fact that we're 
born spiritually dead, and etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But he has to now point people to the Christ who came and did all of those things, right? Fulfilled all righteousness, and now is the focal point of salvation for all mankind. Right? That that's what's important. And point number five, the new ministries of the Spirit for salvation to the world. And this is uh, depicted in the verses before us. John uh, chapter 16, 8 through 11. He's going to talk about some of the three things. And I think we're getting into some of that a little later. So I'll reserve. But where did we find this in context? It's in John chapter 16, right? Verses 8 through 11. We're on verse 8. We still... So our focus on these verses is about the ministries of the Spirit that God is bringing through the Holy Spirit now, when he comes. And when does all this happen? When does the Holy Spirit come and begin to talk about all of these things, this, the new details that are um, upon the earth by means of the Holy Spirit? Remember, Christ can't, uh, until he's glorified, then the Holy Spirit won't come. So Christ didn't ascend until 10 days. He stayed here 40 days. So he is glorified, and then he's going to send the Spirit. So Pentecost comes, and it's around 50 days when Pentecost had come. Like it says in Acts 2, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, then uh, it, and it describes what happened on that day in Acts chapter 2. So, so that's the first thought, right? Because he will prove the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. But then, the second thought of the Spirit's ministry, which we're going to get to, and these are latter verses, verses 12 through 15, where he's going to talk about the church, the building of the church. So the second thought of the Spirit's ministry to the new church. We'll get to that. I'm sort of outlining it here for you. So the first thought is primarily the information is about the new hidden age. And that's Ephesians 3, 2 through 4. I mean, think about it. This is information that we need. If God is revealing this information, his eternal purpose, all that, where he, prior to this, he had hid this information, this is certainly something for us to ponder. Ephesians 3, 2 through 4 says, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. I'm going into verse 5, which was not made known to people, in other generations, as it has now been revealed. Notice, how has it been revealed? By the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. So that's important. When did that all happen? Pentecost, right? When, when, they were, when the Holy Spirit was fully able to just tell them when this new dispensation has happened, right? This is something that the Holy Spirit brings to the table. It's about information about this new hidden age. Point number two. In this new age, the Spirit will reveal the much more information that the disciples could not handle. So if you look in John 16, 12, it says, Jesus says, after he finishes with the world, he says, I have much more to tell you, more than you can now bear or handle. So that, that's coming, right? And that much more information is what we are now basking in in this age. This is, what, this is what we now think about. Like it says, this is the wisdom that was destined for our glory before time began. This is where Paul was saying in Ephesians 1, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened and in order that you may know him better that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the glorious riches of his inheritance in the saints. Right. So all of this is part of what the Holy Spirit is revealing to us. 
This is the information. This is the much more that Christ could not deal with because, one, the disciples were grief-stricken. They could not even pay attention, even though he was telling them these things. Uh, they were not attentive to them. So a couple of times he says, yeah, when, this, when these things happen, you'll remember what I said. And not only that, the Holy Spirit will bring to your memory things I have told you. So, so disciples were not in any shape to really comprehend and, and to retain this information, but they would have it. They would. So point number three, this new information, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things, right? This is, this is what this new information, it was kept hidden. We already saw in, in verse five, it says, which was not made to known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed. This is Ephesians 3, 5. But then later in Ephesians, <clears throat> it tells us that not only was it kept from people, but uh, obviously it was hid in God. That's Ephesians 3, 9. And then later it even talks about angels didn't even know. Right? They longed to look into these things because they didn't know about them. So in Colossians 1, 25 and 26, we see very other language, very similar. So if you're not sure, like what is this information, right? If you try to relate this information to things that are in the Old Testament, you, you're going to fail. Because clearly, this information was not in the Old Testament. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't take analogies from the Old Testament, do object learning, right? Try to help people understand the new information in the light of the old, right? All the object lessons and things that we could use, just like we might use metaphors and analogies about banking, about uh, commerce, about agriculture. Or, I mean, whatever walk of life, nature, uh, we even use that to, to try to illustrate truth, right? In fact, a good example was... As I was preparing some of this, uh, I happen to have Microsoft Word, and you can set your Microsoft Word to automatically save, right? So, so every time you do something, it takes a couple seconds, and boom, it's it's automatically saved. You don't have to you ever have to worry about uh, backing up uh, this or that. So, so you know, if you look in the top border. If I were to make a change in the document, it says saving, and that's and it has three dots, and then it'll say saved. That's automatic, you know. And I, I thought about that. I said, "Wow, saved." That's that's an analogy, and it's automatic for us who are in Christ. And I'm, it, there is no condemnation. If whatever, what is my status at all times? Saved. I did I do it? No, God did it. He's the one who saved me. It is not something that needs to be updated. It is a fact that we are saved. I mean, it made me think of that. So as you relate to salvation and some of the truths that are revealed to us, God will give you analogies as you look around. You know, just look around the world. You see them all over. That's exactly what happens. So in, in this, this Colossians chapter... Uh, you see, again, this is 125. It says, I have, Paul says, I have become its servant. Its is the church. By the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. So I always stop at this point because we did not have the word of God in its fullness when we are reading just the Old Testament. You need more. You need this new information. This is part of God's, you might say, giving us the word of God. He held this back. If he didn't tell us, that means he held information back from us. But it was for his purposes, obviously. He had good reason to do it. But then, now we have it. So what should we do? Ignore it? Try to say it doesn't matter? Depend on the old? No, we should embrace it. That's what we should do. And what does he say it is in verse 26? The mystery it has been kept hidden. It's not just hidden. It was kept hidden for ages and generations. 
but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. Why is Paul calling it a mystery? Why does he say it's the mystery? Why? Because it's his learn, it's a teaching aid that he's using to help us understand what was revealed to the Old Testament was not what is revealed now. He's trying to accentuate this information, set it apart by calling it a mystery. And Peter doesn't call it a mystery. James, John, they don't call it a mystery. Paul does. And it's his way of teaching. This is, we're just talking about, you know, looking in the world and seeing uh, metaphors, seeing ways to look at truth. And Paul did. Through, through Paul's eyes, he said, hey, it's just like this mystery, right? Nobody knew it. It was hidden. And now it is revealed. It's disclosed to the Lord's people. Now, we should note <clears throat> that the Lord uh, knows what the mystery is. He kept it hidden. Now he disclosed it. But a lot of Christians still don't know it. It's a problem. They, they are still looking in the Old Testament for wisdom, knowledge, and direction in their lives. They're not looking to what God has for the church. In fact, like we said earlier in Ephesians chapter 3, God is, even the angels now are looking into the mystery. They're learning from the church what the mystery is. And they're seeing it for the first time. You know, I would venture to say angels know more about the mystery than a lot of the people in the church. And I hate to say it, this, I'm going to go another step forward and say Satan knows more about the mystery than a lot of the Christians in the church. He, because he's the enemy. He's trying to fight it. He hates it. But he knows about it. He, he understands that's what God's plan is. So what is he trying to do? Overturn God's plan. Confuse those who are on the ground. Distort the truth of what God has done. That's what he's doing. He's busy deceiving people. So it's, it's a sad commentary to say such things when we have the word of God right here in front of us. And yet, we have the Holy Spirit, and still, people are ignorant about this mystery. And it's right here in the words. Uh, let's keep going. Where it says, where it says, the mystery has been kept hidden for ages in Colossians 1.26. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, this related to riches, which is Christ in you, the hope of of glory. We talked about that glory when we were in Romans. The glory that's going to come to us through this, through all of this. So then in Colossians chapter 2, Paul's, uh, he, he continues. He says, I want you to know how much I, how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart, united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding. So there's growing in this thing. Right? There's not just, okay, I got it, I, I know what it is now. No, it, it, we may have the full riches of complete understanding, right? The riches are not related to gold, silver, diamonds, and, you know, cars and houses and land. This is what it's related to. The full riches of complete understanding. This is what God has blessed us with. Like it says in Ephesians 1 where he says that he has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Right? This is what God has done and, and for us to understand it is richness here. That's what it said. To be the riches of complete understanding. And what, and what does that mean? In order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So all of that, uh, it's like we were saying, all things were created by him <coughs> and for him. By him and for him. <clears throat> Back to our notes. So we have those verses about this new information that the Spirit brings. And then point four, the new ministries of the Spirit as well, right? All of those ministries are going to, uh, we're going to study in more detail. We're going to talk about 
We're going to take our time. But they are all summarized, not all of them, but th these are only intro introductions to the Spirit's ministry. Having the benefit of uh, going through the apostles and prophets and the understanding, we now have the full capacity to understand the Father's eternal purpose and that we might be filled to the, to the measure of the fullness of Christ. We have that opportunity. They, the disciples, were growing into this. And I'm sure, not that they didn't reach it, but it had just been introduced. So that's, those are the four points that deal with the second thought, right? So that when, when he comes, two things that he's going to lift up. One is to the world, right? He's going to prove he will prove or rebuke or convince the world. And then he will also, as we get to the verse 12 through 15, he's going to talk to believers. These are unique things when he comes that he will accentuate with believers. So two things there that are important for us to note. So point C, he will prove. Okay, what does this word prove Right, here's the Greek word here in our notes. It means to confute, to admonish, convict, convince, tell a fault, rebuke, repu reprove as well. These all come from strong, his definition. And you can see that the Holy Spirit has something to say to the world. Right, and this is it. So this is the world at large, and then we obviously will be talking about the when it says he will guide you into all truth and so forth. He's talking specifically about the disciples. So that's where why we can break it down into two parts. So let's move forward. I see our time is moving forward, so we want to do that as well. Point number three, to be in the, the wrong about sin. So now we're going to talk about what is he going to reprove the world with? What, what are the things that are tantamount in the Spirit's mind? Like, what did God want to convey to us through the Spirit? And there are three things. And we're not going to get to all of the three things, the detail of them today, because there's explanation in these chapters, in the latter verses. And I would say, and always defer to what God says they are, when he says to be in the wrong about sin. And then later he says, about sin, because. He's going to tell us what he means by that. About righteousness, because. About judgment, because. Well, what's on the other side of that is important to our conversation. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I, I have to say that that's going to weigh heavily on what we say uh, or we conclude, because... This is what God is saying. The word is obviously its own interpreter here. So I could say the word says that, but let me tell you, it doesn't mean that. It says something else. Well, I better have great justification for saying such a thing. But I'm not saying that. I'm trying to say exactly what we find here in the context. So that's one of the things. When the context gives us some explanation, we take it. We take it. So let's deal with this. Point A, he will admonish, convict, convince, rebuke, reprove the world, who? Of unbelievers. He's not doing that for believers. Believers already have put their faith in Christ and are saved. So he's not doing that for believers. He's doing that for unbelievers. And what about? What primarily, I would say, is the bad news. That's what it is. The solution to it has been secured by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know we have that from Ephesians 2, 1, and th 1 through 3, where it says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, the ruler of the prince of the air, spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us follow the ways of this world. Stand by. Continuing where we left off, we're resuming, and so what we are seeing is point three, this is where we are, point number three, 
And um, we're talking about he will admonish, convict, convince, rebuke, reprove the world of unbelievers. What about the bad news, right? That's what it is. And I was just quoting Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And what, what about what's wrong about sin? What is wrong about sin? And I would say, uh, what, what about sin in the world is wrong, right? What is the world misinformed about with regard to sin? We should ask that question because the Holy Spirit is coming. He's going to do all these things, convince, reprove, rebuke the world with reference to sin. What does the world have wrong about sin? That's the point B. And I say primarily it's the bad news. Uh, the world rejects this. They don't accept the fact that all of us were born in sin, shaped in iniquity, as David would say. And the Holy Spirit's objective to bring this to their attention. They refuse. We saw it happen to Israel, where people re refuse to listen to the bad news. How can you be saved if you don't even know you were lost? Or you don't even know the extent to which you're lost? How can you be saved if you don't accept that you're lost. You like the saved part. You like to say, okay, I'm, I'm saved. But you're not sure what salvation is all about. I think that's a problem. I think we need to understand. And not just, okay, I'm a sinner. But at least an acknowledgement of what the Bible says about our condition. And that's important, I think, with regard to salvation. That we have a good understanding about sin. It is big. It is large in the minds of many. So we need to understand that. That's the Holy Spirit's objective. Now, we said there were some different things about sin, right? If you do not know the bad news, you, you cannot help the Spirit. So you, as someone who witnesses, right, you need to learn the bad news yourself before you can tell people about salvation. If you, if you talk to people, they don't know the bad news, but yet they're ready to go out and do the work of the Lord. They don't know the bad news. How can they do the work? How can they help God the Holy Spirit when they don't know what the bad news is? It's a problem. Point D, sin. Right, with regard to sin, okay, so God has a solution to the sin problem, and that's final. I'm going to read a couple verses in Hebrews and one in 1 John. So Hebrews 10, and there's a lot of verses in Hebrews that we could refer to. But we're going to look at these 11 through 13. And if you want, you can read the context starting at Hebrews 10, 1. But we, for the sake of time, here we are. Hebrews 10, 11, day after day. Every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So there was, there was an awful reminder that sins really never were taken away. They were covered. That's what atonement means, covering. So verse 12. But when this priest had offered for all time, notice it's not just for you know, time that people were committing sins at that time, but for all time, one sacrifice for sins. He sat down. He's done. Remember the other priest, day after day, never stopped. He performed the same duties again and again, right? With sacrifices that really were only to cover. Now, this is not something the Jews came up with. This is God's will that they offer these sins, uh, these sacrifices for sins. But that was then. But now Christ steps forward one time, offers himself a sacrifice for sins. And then it says he sat down. Sat down. If he offers himself his life, well, that means his life will be taken from him. There was no animal that survived the sacrifice. All of the animals died that were sacrificed for sins. And so did Christ. He wasn't an animal. He was a human being. He died. So this verse also says for him to sit down says that he has to be resurrected. 
It says he sat down at the right hand of God, not only resurrected, but ascended and seated in heaven. Right? And since that time, verse 13, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. So now he's still waiting for the consummation of all things, which we should be waiting for. We should be thinking about as well. Like the things that are what's next. This is what's next. Just like Christ is waiting, we're waiting. It's not over. So just to know that. And then First John 2 and 2. Right? I don't know how many times we read that one, but I'm going to turn to it again. First John 2. Verse 2, he, Christ, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not ours only. Not, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, if we say the whole world, that is future as well. It's from the time the first sin was committed, and that would be Adam, to the last sin in the millennium to be committed. We don't know who that is going to be. But from for all time, for every sin that was ever committed on the earth, Christ is, is the propitiation. Atoning sacrifice means not just, well, he died. It means that the Father is satisfied with the work of Christ in our behalf. He's satisfied with the work of Christ in the judgment of the sins of the whole world, everybody, not just Jews, everybody in the whole world. So that says that that's a solution. And then there are a lot of other verses I could bring forward, and I, I know you probably are thinking of some. But what I would say is that is a final answer to this. That answer can never be improved on. There's nothing more that needs to be said about that, that all of our sins were never imputed to us. They were imputed to Christ for judgment, right? God did not count our sins against us. There's a lot more we could say to this. But what we should know is that sins are final. That's it. So point, point E, since Christ was judged for all our sins, can we be judged for them too? Now, it seems like religious people want to be judged for their sins. And, and their judgment in their mind is, well, life is hard because of my sins. And all I got to do is be obedient and I can atone for my sins. That is not how it works. Your obedience has nothing to do with your lost state. That's why it says in Romans 3, Therefore, by doing what the law says, the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. We can't be justified by keeping the law. We're dead in our transgressions and sins. We're dead before God. That's how he sees us. So we, trying to be obedient, that's the wrong course of action. And, you know, that was my experience, too. When I think about how I thought about sin and what my, there's so many areas you could you know, go astray here. But one of the ways I went astray was I thought I didn't understand how uh, sin was, the problem of sin was judged. God had dealt with that. It's not something that continues on and on, right? And I didn't, I, and this one point, right? And this is what I used to say. I remember when I was trying to finally understand it. I said, wait a minute. If Christ was judged for all of my sins, why is it in my theology, which, which it was at the time, that I might have to still be judged for them? right? If I don't confess them or repent of them or something, I might be judged for those sins. So, but, but Christ was supposedly judged for those sins. So then I thought, I said, okay, wait a minute. Either I'm going to trust the fact that Christ was a judge for my sins, or I was going to not trust that and say that, I must stand responsible for my sins. And I remember struggling with that thought. And then I, I even, once I got on the one side of it, and I said, well, I'm going to believe God. I want to believe God that Christ is the judgment for my sins. Well, what, what about, can I be judged for him? I said, well, if I'm judged for sins, 
That means whatever Christ did, it wasn't good enough. It, it, obviously, if the Father still needed to judge me for something, whatever Christ did wasn't complete. It wasn't full. But the scriptures don't support that idea. The scriptures are on the other side of that. He is the propitiation. God, he's the satisfaction of the justice of God for my sins. I stand justified in Christ. But, and yet, so this was all in my mind. In my head. This was my experience. So wait a minute. I can't be saying Christ's work is not good enough. Isn't the Bible saying it is? He was resurrected, all that raised. Propitiation, he died for our sin. That's good. Why am I entering the work of God with my puny works? So the world does not have or believe that there is a final answer to the sin problem. So what he says about sin, and we're going to get to what the writer here says, what John is saying, but I want to move forward in our notes because uh, we got a lot more to talk about. So, and then, so point number four, and righteousness and judgment. So it's, he will prove the world of sin, what is wrong about sin or concerning sin, and righteousness and judgment. So what about righteousness? So this is where John, listen, John deals with righteousness here. It's, as far as John is concerned, the Holy Spirit is coming. Three things are on his mind. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. And he knows that when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to rebuke, convict, prove the world guilty with regard to these things. Now, obviously, the world is guilty with regard to these things because of what Adam did. But because we were talking about, like we went to this whole thing about can we truly help the Holy Spirit if we don't know what the bad news is, and we cannot. We're ineffective and impudent when it comes to trying to help the God, the Holy Spirit, get people saved when we don't know the bad news. So that's why three things that are mentioned here are lifting up, accentuating the things that the Holy Spirit has gone after every person who is unsaved about these three things. Do you want to help God? Do you want to help him? then this is where you need help because this is where God the Holy Spirit is helping people understand. Okay, so, so that's the first thought is what about righteousness and judgment, right? What about that? So Christ has much more to tell us through the Apostle Paul, quote, for in this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. That's Romans 17, 1, 17. And then, uh, so we talk about righteousness, Paul nails it. The Apostle Paul is very clear. And what I like about that verse 17 is Paul says, listen, I'm going to tell you about salvation, but you know what I'm going to tell you? About how important righteousness is to God with regard to salvation. That's what we need to know. That's what you need to know need to make sure you understand. So this is, uh, this is where Paul deals with in Romans 1.17. He says, he says, a righteousness that is revealed in the gospel. And he's going to tell us all about it. And then in 3, he really breaks it down. Verses 19 through 24, Romans 3. I'll turn to it. <coughs> Excuse me. 19 through 24. Now we know that whatever the law says... It says to those who are under the law, so that, now first of all, whenever we talk about the law in the Bible, let's just put this to bed. Whenever we talk about the law, we're talking about the Jews. The Gentiles didn't have the law. When God called Israel out of Egypt, right? They were slaves in Egypt, and he called them as a nation. And he, who did he give them the words to? This nation, Israel, he did never. He never went to all the nations and said, "These are the laws that you have to obey." No, they didn't. So, whenever you see conversations here about the law, go to Galatians, whatever. He's talking about 
the Mosaic law, the Jews, what they got at Mount Sinai. So, so let's just not think, okay, this is moral behavior. And I know people are like, boy, you must be moral. God expects everybody to be moral. This is not the point. You can't be moral when you're dead in transgressions and sins like the rest. You're by nature, by nature, objects of wrath. Morality is gone a long way from you. God does not see you as moral or immoral. You're dead. So, so let's just put that to bed. Let's not even think that as a Gentile, you could keep the law. When he even tells the Jew here that the law does, lends nothing to his salvation. So we know that every, it says to those who are under the law, and that's the Jews, so that every mouth may be silenced. And now even the whole world is held accountable to God. So the Jews don't have anything to say, and neither does anybody in the whole world have anything to say. But certainly the law reveals the righteousness of God. Verse 20, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works or doing what the law says. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. We become, con we become conscious that we need to shut our mouths before God. We have nothing to say to God when it comes to righteousness. We, we, the law can't help us be righteous. We need to look beyond the law in order to be righteous. But now, verse 21, apart from the law, it would have to be apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been, has been made known to, to which the law and the prophets testify. This is Old Testament theology as well as New Testament theology. It's just the fact that Christ confirmed these things now. Right? Christ came and we didn't get to... The, the reasoning where Christ demonstrated the righteousness, right? But but now he has. Before he hadn't. He hadn't come and done what he, he did. Now he has. So these things are nailed down now. So Law and the Prophets testify, this righteousness is what we're talking about. It's given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. If there's no difference, then that means the law doesn't have any impact because the Gentiles did not have the law. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are in the category of under sin, just like Paul said. Are we Jews any better? No. Uh, we have made the conclusion, this is verse 9, 3, 9, that Jews and Gentiles alike are under sin. That's the conclusion Paul made, makes. He says, uh, verse 24, and all are justified freely by the grace, his grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. That's it. That's how we have become righteous, right? There's no other way that we can, it can happen. And it's not even logical to think that there is another way. Point B, the important matter of righteousness before God is settled forever in Christ, which we just dealt with. Second uh, Corinthians 5 says that we receive, he has taken our sins and he has given us his perfect righteousness. He lived a perfect life. That's the credit that we can get. And it's by grace. It is freely given to everybody. And then point C, not only that, but the way of righteousness is clear. If you go through Romans chapter 4, and he continues, Paul, uh, since I'm in 3, I'll just quick over to 4, 9 through 11. This is one thing Paul says, Is this blessedness only for the circumcised, that's the Jews, or also for the uncircumcised, that's the Gentiles? Right? This blessedness is referring to is believing and receiving righteousness, right? being saved. We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness, right? His faith. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. So the point that he's making was, it has nothing to do with the law. Nothing whatsoever to do with the law. Paul, uh, this is Abraham being justified. Well, God did tell Abraham to be circumcised, and the circumcision was a part of this covenant that he had entered into with God. However, 
none of that was on the table when Abraham believed and was saved and justified forever. So we just need to, to put that to bed. We really do need to put a lot of these arguments to bed. So then, point D, the context explanation is yet to come. Right? So as Christ is going to say, with regard to righteousness, because, remember we said that's coming, that's verse 10, it's going to come. He's going to explain what he means by um, that the Holy Spirit would convict of, of sin and of righteousness, this is what we're on, and of judgment. So he's going to explain what he means, and we're going to get into it in a lot more detail as well once we get to that first. Point E, what about judgment? The world needs to know the consequences of rejecting God's gracious offer. That's in verse 11 where he deals with and the prince of this world has been judged and he's going to talk about what he means by judgment. We're going to talk about that in much more detail as well. But we should know that the gospel includes, right, This a lot of people think, and I used to think this too, I used to think, well, you know, if everybody's just working on up to salvation, that's they just are in some phase of getting to salvation. It depends on how they live. But really, everybody starts out lost. We're all lost under the wrath of God. And that's from Adam. And when God, when God explains that to you, then you realize that there is nothing you could do and that salvation is free. So now you have some choices to make. Do you believe that? Right? That you're lost and that the wrath of God is on you and all of that's true. That's where you already start with God. You don't start in some place where he's allowing you to, to earn your way into some sort of uh, relationship with him. You start lost under the wrath of God, condemned. So that's how it works. That's what you need to understand. And we'll get to that. There are consequences to remaining in this position. So for all of these things, the world is reproved of. This is the last point here. They must relate to the gospel. Right? Because this is the Holy Spirit is only trying to convict the world of the gospel. The Holy Spirit is not trying to get the world into some self-help group. The world is already lost, condemned. That's it. right? So the only thing, the best thing that God the Holy Spirit will do for them is going to be related to the gospel, which is to save them. That is the highest goal that we can think of for God uh, to think of. This is his thought. It is about salvation, that they might be saved. It is sin, righteousness, and judgment. He deals with three things. So I'm going to close with John 3 and 36. We're going to have to close. I know our time is over. John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Now, believing in the Son is not something you came to on your own. It is something that you were enlightened and you came to through the working of God the Holy Spirit in your life. But this is a statement of fact. Whoever believes in the Son, well, he, the statement of fact is they have eternal life. They possess it. But whoever rejects the Son, and that word is not just doesn't believe, it means he refuses to believe the Son, will not see life. They are not like, I got half life and I'm working on up to it. Nope, they're still under the wrath of God. Guess what? They understand what the Holy Spirit has said, but they reject it. They refuse to believe it. So he will not see life. They won't get it this eternal life that we just mentioned in the first part of the verse. For God's wrath, this says for. It didn't say God's wrath will come upon them. It is, it remains on them. They were already under the wrath of God. They never got out from out of the wrath of God. God's wrath remains on them. They, they refused God's gracious offer. And that's the result. They stay in the place that they were born in from Adam. Not that they didn't know, but it's that they didn't 
care. They didn't. Ref they refused for whatever reason. You could put as to why they refused it. it. It's on them to refuse it. They refuse to believe in Christ. We're going to continue with this thought and with the, the working of the Holy Spirit, which I said is the most momentous thing that has happened in this world. Well, of course, we wouldn't. Man would not say that. But we who understand the impact, the implications, the significance of the Spirit certainly understand what God is doing now by bringing these many sons into glory. Let's bow our heads as we close. Father, thank you so much for this time we have. We're so grateful for what you've called us to. There's nothing we could have done to put ourselves in that number that you chose in him before the creation of the world. I, all we can do is sit back and be thankful, grateful, and to show our appreciation through our knowledge and love. So, Father, we pray for wisdom so that we can know how to walk in this world, so we can know, navigate the, properly. Uh, we can, all the things that are happening all around us, but there's death and and dying, and there's grieving, and there's sorrow, and there's uh, hatred, and all sorts of things going on all around us all the time. We are called for a specific purpose. And while we may grieve with those who grieve, mourn with those who mourn, it is in our heart, Father, that we want to, that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So we thank you for this group where we can come and rehearse your plan. We can talk about the detail of what you have called us to. And then as we go out in the world, we can talk to people, whatever, wherever they are, whatever stage they're in, and help them to come to know you better. All this we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Amen.